Trend following as a strategy is often referred to as a black box, like if there was something bad going on inside. And it was refreshing to hear Scott Foster talk about why trend following is in fact a white box or a transparent box compared to many other algorithmic strategies, which are often embraced by investors to a much larger degree. So I'm delighted to share these insights from a conversation I had with Scott, where he also touches on the essential question, why are there trends and why ought there be trends in the future? So sit back and relax and enjoy this unique short clip uh, with observations from Scott. And if you would like to listen to the full conversation, just go to toptradersonplock.com forward slash 27 and forward slash 28. No, but the, but that was a very important explanation, and it, it it ties into so many other things. And and I want to go I, I want to go further than this, but I, I want to actually ask you a question that actually doesn't relate to short term trading. Sure. But but it's my kind of trying to understand what it is you're saying and putting into a, a slightly different perspective, and that's relates to more generally speaking about trend following. Because obviously, as we know, you mentioned 1994, and I remember seeing you know all the all the great guys sitting lined up at, at a conference in Chicago and and talking you know about a very difficult period. But they were convinced that this was just you know a difficult period and things would come back. But 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 let me ask you this: trends in markets in general, not necessarily short term, but just generally, is that? kind of based on universal truth because at the end of the day trends reflect human behavior and human behavior will never change and what we're seeing now then where perhaps there have been a lack of trends for a period of time is just part of you know a normal cycle absolutely i uh, i often express my um I don't say unhappiness but i i think trend followers could do a much better job of of explaining what they're doing, you know, everybody seems to want to be a scientist. Mm. Um, and nothing wrong with that. It's just that I, I, it, you know, I gave a, a talk a few years ago in Monaco on this about um, the difference between what we would call black box and what I would call white box. Mm -hmm. and, and I was trying to make a differentiation between systematic, some forms of systematic trading and some forms of systematic slash algorithmic trading. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the vast majority of what, you know, of people outside, they're in the alternative in industry, won't invest in systematic strategies because they don't feel like they have the expertise to understand them or the mathematical skills to. And I was trying to make a case that, well, as it pertains to the vast majority of managed futures, they're not black box. And the reason being is what are they, uh, what are they going after? Mm -hmm. And I tried to make a case that uh, they're going after uh, a, a universal Mm. When you ask a trend follower, why do you make money? Um, if they start going talking about formulas and all this type of stuff, the question is, well, you, you, you know, they're, they're really the only way they can make money is if they're trends. And the question mm. is, well, why are there trends and why ought there to be trends in the future? And a trend follower, when asked, why are you going to make money in the future? I think they should respond because trends cannot not exist. Yeah. And the question, and, and, you know, what exactly in particular does that mean? Well, it's what you said. It's the fact that at least in a, in a free society, mm. markets... Uh, you know, markets exist uh, to create efficiencies for the greater good. And if, you know, if the price of wheat, if we start running out of wheat, uh, the price has to go higher to, it has to, to, to ration the remaining supply 
uh, it has to you know ration the, the remaining demand. It has to increase the supply. Mm. It has to incentivize people to plant more wheat because we're running out of it. And mm. if we didn't have you know futures markets were created for that purpose, and without them, the prices of food would be fluctuating all over the place. Mm. But at the end of the day, there are inefficiencies that you can arb out of the market, and there are inefficiencies that you can't arb out of a market. The ones you can't arb out of a market are natural law mm. inefficiencies, or universals, as, as, I, as you and I, you've called them and I've called them. And trends are one of them. You, if, if you're running out of wheat, you can't arb that. The, the price is going higher, sure. and nobody can stop it. Unless the government steps in and subsidizes something or, or gets in the way of it, the market will go where it needs to go mm. until there is an equilibrium between the buyers and the sellers. Mm. So in theory, and this is Austrian theory, mm. that they trends are necessary. I mean, for, there are short time periods, and this is what's hard to explain to people who are following trend followers around, because usually the time periods of equilibrium are not as long as they have been. Mm. And so there are times when trend followers, they're just, you know, some of the markets just randomly are, uh, they happen to be fairly valued hmm. and nothing changes that in the future. But unless, you know, we become perfect prognosticators and you know exactly how much of any given commodity is going to be needed, you know, a year from now and exactly how much supply to create to meet that need, which nobody can know that. I mean, we've tried command economies, can, you know, it, it doesn't work. There's no way to plan. Mm. You know, the socialist calculation debate has, has completely devastated the idea of central planning because you don't know. How, you know, the trend will tell you what to do. The trend will tell you whether you need more wheat or you need more copper or you need more of, you know, or whatever you have until there's an equal amount so that everybody's needs are, are, are served. So yeah. right now, it, it's, you know, I think it's pretty obvious at this point to everybody uh, that, the Federal Reserve and, 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 and government intrusion in the marketplace, particularly through suppression of interest rates, has been devastating for price discovery in pretty much all freely traded markets. Mm. They're, they're not allowed to go. And when you control the price of money, you control the price of everything. Mm. And when there is a threat of constant intervention uh, through regulation, taxation, and nobody really knows because nobody, I mean, the government and the Federal Reserve don't know where they're going with this. Mm. They pretend they do, but they don't. And most businessmen know they don't know, and there's no exit strategy. And so it's created incredible uh, suppression of, of price trends, and it's created volatility with no direction. It's created all kinds, of, it's wreaked havoc on the markets. Um, but eventually, if you look at it and say, what is this ultimately? This is ultimately a price control. Right. And price controls ultimately create the exact opposite of their intended uh, effect. Yeah. The question is, how long is it going to take? The markets will eventually they'll go crazy. I mean, they're going to go to where they need to go, where they have not been allowed to go. Mm. And hopefully uh, that won't be too far in the future so that, you know, the business is still, is still around and exists <laughs> to take advantage of it. But I think it's probably closer than it's you know been, but I probably would have said that a year ago. Hmm. Uh, sure. But I, I think it's a, it's a certainty. It's just a question of how long can the government uh, and global governments uh, keep this, you know, illusion up. Because right now, you know, as we mentioned earlier, the perception is based upon, you know, spreads, you know, yields on junk, uh, there is no risk. Yeah. You know, lowest volatility levels in fixed income, foreign exchange uh, ever. Uh, you know, stock market just a month ago had finished 40 straight days without moving a single well, a percent, which it mm. hadn't done in over 20 years. Mm. Um, the market is not pricing any risk into the, into the situation, which is uh, irrational, but That's you know, the way irrationality it yeah, can last longer than uh, a lot of firms can stay solvent. So, um, so back to the magic, the perception is there is no risk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, it's very interesting. But but let me ask you this. Well, first of all, let me just say that I can imagine with the explanation you gave about, you know, philosophy and universal truth that 
there aren't that much room in a normal due diligence questionnaire to fill out the box uh, where it says, you know, um, I, I believe in universal truth uh, as one of my founding principles. So, but let me ask you then uh, this question. If that's the case, and this is the way you develop models, which is quite different from most other managers, is your model decay, which a lot of short-term managers is uh, saying that there are mod- there is model decay in the way they uh, trade and maybe a model last two years. But, but is my understanding correct then that in fact you don't really see that as such, or at least not to the same extent? That's true. I, uh, model decay is, um, is not generally something that I worry about. Um, for me, for, uh, for a model that, that starts to underperform what it has in the past, mm-hmm. um, you know, we, we tend to be a lot more qualitative about that. Um, you know, to give you an example of how like one of our models might decay as opposed to how somebody else's models, because, mm-hmm. you know, again, we're not, we're not looking at, you know, parameters in our models are not, you know, numbers with lots of decimal places to the right. Uh, they're, you know, like they're mostly binary switches. Mm-hmm. If this happens, we do this. If this happens, we do this. If this happens, we do this. Because it's it's much more qualitative. It's almost like a how a discretionary trader would trade a two or three day move in the marketplace based upon how he would feel like he's reacting to a bunch of other traders that are doing something. Yeah. Um, the decay would be something that is more tied to the structure of the marketplace and, and have very little to do with parameter sets or um, other things. Like for example, years ago, quite a long time ago. Uh, you know, we had uh, some models that were trading off where the opening price was. Mm-hmm. And back at that time period, and for many years prior to that, there was a real psychology about a gap. Right. And, even, and a lot of people have written about it, you know, will the gap be closed? Will this happen? And so forth. And, and I had some models that I thought that there was a reason why there would be, under certain conditions, overreaction on the open. Right. And then I would go against that. It was part of you know some some it was part of our reversion strategies repertoires, and it tied out to this particular psychology of what was going on here. And it over time that model started to deteriorate, uh-huh. and you get to a point where you know you're always reviewing performance everywhere, like okay, what's going on here? And then the light bulb goes off. Well, as you know, electronic trading and off hours and globex started to become more and more uh, prevalent, and as uh, more people in, in Europe and Asia were having access to the same or similar markets, risk was being able to be transferred more effectively around the clock. Right. So the, the pent up demand on the open was slowly diminishing. I mean, there still is some, mm. but it's usually retail people executing on the open while you know the professionals pull all their orders and they create the big zigzag in the first you know ten minutes. But it's not; it's a it's a different character than it than it used to have. And so, when we understand this is the psychology that we're, we're you know we're doing, we're, we're tying this out to this one principle. But the market structure itself is no longer offering us the opportunity to utilize that principle in this construct. Then we make an adjustment to it, mm. um, which is not as uh, that type of thing isn't happening. It's not like all of our different models. We think that every day they're slightly deteriorating by, you know, 0.01%. And then, you know, it's always a clock that we have to, and don't, I don't think of that way at all. As a matter of fact, I, I can, you know, nothing is more surprising to me when I dust off a model that I haven't even touched in 15 years and it's at new equity highs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's just, it, it, it's one of those things that, you know, that makes you feel great. Most of the times that I can track back to underperformance 
uh, or poor performance for any stretch of time uh, rarely rarely can be tied to a bad parameter set. Um, usually it's tied to a, a principle that wasn't fully uh, uh, tied out or even worse, which is, you know, you're always balancing trying to, uh, to, to, to make decisions about things. But, you know, one of the biggest risks is, you know, changing anything about your models mm. uh, because you can have incredible slippage. You, you know, you stop trading one model because it's doing poorly and then you add one that's doing well, but then all of a sudden the one that you just dumped has a huge recovery and the one you got in does poorly. And all you have to do is do that a couple times in succession and you're looking at double your max drawdown and all your clients are going away. Hmm. So the way, uh, you know, a process by which you, you uh, implement changes is, is as important as the changes themselves. But a big part of that is understanding what's, what's driving the changes because hmm. Things that are coming from a, a universal are a lot different than things that are coming from the particulars, mm. uh, in, my, in my opinion, anyway. That's it for now. And remember that if you want to listen to the full conversation with Scott, please go over to toptradersonplug.com forward slash 27 and forward slash 28. If you enjoyed this short, insightful clip from a past episode of the show, then you will love the free book I'm giving away right now. It's called The Many Flavors of Trend Following, and it includes some of my best insights on this perhaps the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. And you can get the free copy right now at toptradersonplot.com forward slash book and start your own investment journey today. So again, just jump over to toptradersonplot.com forward slash book and make sure to subscribe to the podcast or YouTube channel where I'll be back next week with more exciting and engaging conversations. Until next time, take care. <laughs>